these uh, Christmas carols and songs. Thank you. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Once again this morning for our third Sunday, we're going to begin reading at verse 5 and read down through verse 11. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. This is God's Word for us this morning. And here's what God's Word says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You may be seated. Thank you, Father, for your word. For we know that there is no word like your word. And our prayer is that now you would help us as we look at this word, that you would show us wonderful things concerning your Son, Christ. And our prayer, Father, is that in seeing these things, in beholding them, you would change us. Father, for some, that would mean that you would bring them from death to life this very morning. And that from from others, it would mean that you would change us from one degree of glory to another. So, Father, may your word do its work by your spirit, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, building upon the last two Sundays, today and next Sunday, the plan is to build upon what we've considered about who Christ is He is both God and He is man. He is the God-man. He is God who took on flesh. And now consider this morning and next week something of the states that Christ experienced in the context of His activity and His work here on earth. You see, our passage... Um, in Philippians, has explored not just who God is as, not just who Christ is as God who became man, but also something of what Christ experienced in terms of humility, but also in terms of being exalted. Two things I want us to think about this morning. They're there in an insert in your bulletin, if that's helpful for you to follow along with. First, I want us to think about the, the clarity of Jesus' humility. There's something that is 
eminently clear in our scriptures and in this reading in particular, and that is Christ is humble. But then I want us to hmm, complicate the thing a little bit. I, I want us to see not just something of the clarity of Christ's humility, but I want us to consider briefly, and then we'll jump into it more fully next week, something of the complexity of Christ's humility. First of all, the clarity about Jesus' humility. As we read our passage again this morning, particularly when we landed upon verse 8, there's, there's one thing that should first strike us as we read about Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who took on human flesh, the, that God, who, who in His divine nature and being also added to that uh, a human nature. So this one person now has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. But, but as we marveled at the, the complexity and the mystery of the God-man, it is now we turn our eyes and see something of the state of humility that Jesus displayed that Jesus maintained. And being found in human form, verse 8 says, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient. Almost you see this progression or digression here. He, he became a man and He humbled Himself. He humbled himself becoming, by becoming obedient. And he humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death. He humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. The lowly condescension of our Savior is depicted very briefly and yet very clearly in this passage. Now, the whole context of Philippians 2 screams out some things about humility. And in so doing, it doesn't just label Jesus as humble. It, it, also, it also gives clarity in that it gives something uh, of a definition or description concerning this humility. For instance... Moving backwards into verses 3 and 4 of Philippians chapter 2, it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Just note those. We've got something about selfish ambition, and we've got something about conceit. That, that's going to help us to give definition to our notion of humility here. But in humility, verse 3 goes on, count others as more significant than yourselves. So we're stripping away ambition, selfish ambition and conceit, and we're cultivating something of counting others, regarding others, considering others as more significant than ourselves. Let, let each of you, it adds to that in verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, it's kind of a given, no one has to like draw me a blueprint on how to do that, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. 
Jesus' whole life in the flesh as the God-man could be characterized by the one simple term, humility. His was a humble life. And what we glean from this passage concerning this humility is humility is a disposition. It's a mindset that that seeks to, first of all, practice self-forgetfulness. And in and in cultivating a, a heart disposition or a mindset of self-forgetfulness, it expresses that self-forgetfulness in seeking others. In this case, in Jesus' life, the glory of his Father and the good of his people. In other words, we're talking about the humility of Jesus. We're talking about one who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He wasn't going to just sit around in the eternal throne room and contemplate the greatness of his deity. I'm God, by the way. No, he forgot about himself and his high and holy status. And he cultivated an expression of life that sought the glory of his Father and the good of his people. Therein is your portrait of humility. The, 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 the chief opposite of humility is arrogance and pride. That's why it says, do, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And the chief opponent to humility is selfishness. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Arrogance and selfishness are the chief obstacles, impediments of humility. And out of that renouncing pride and self... Humility is promoting and or putting others first. And so the opposite of humility is promoting ourselves. That's why we love us some social media. That's why we love us some Twitter and some Instagram and some Facebook My, oh, my, if there was ever a mechanism. It didn't create selfishness and self-promotion. It just is a wonderful opportunity, a a vehicle, a platform to convey what's already in the heart. But but the opposite of humility, out of selfishness and, 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 uh, uh, and conceit, arrogance is a life lived that seeks to steal glory from God and seeks to step on the lives of others. So there's something about humility. I'm going to throw out another word. Actually, it's a word that has a similar origin, if you were doing the etymology of a word. But there's a word that's similar in origin to humility, but has a very different meaning than humility, and that's the word humiliation. Whereas humility is a disposition or a mindset that we would cultivate within ourselves, 
that, that we would strive to display and maintain. Humiliation is very different in that sense. It, it, humiliation is a harmful, dehumanizing situation that we can often find ourselves in, that we, that we can find ourselves being pushed in or trapped in, perpetuated by others, whereas humility is something we cultivate our own selves. Humiliation is that which gangs up on us. Others gang up on us, if you would, evil others to harm us and to, and to dehumanize us. Now, I, I compared the two terms, not only so you and I would know that there is a, a, a definitional difference between humility and humiliation, but also to suggest something of the depths and the heights of Jesus's humility, that his humility, his, his chosen path of humility led him down the path of humiliation. In other words, I'm, I'm pressing it a bit more. I'm not just saying that what a humble guy, and he was, but what a humble guy that in seeking the glory of his Father, and in seeking the good of others, which was his humble disposition, that led him through a pathway of experiencing humiliation. That's humbling. Because on the one hand, you and I have been in the church long enough to know that we're supposed to sign up for this humble gig. After all, the preacher told you, you know, be humble. You know. and, uh, but uh, might, might I suggest to you and I that we probably gather here, even with whatever favorable notions we have of humility, we gather here saying somewhere in the deep rest recesses of our mind, there is a limit to my path of humility. I will not succumb to humiliation. But our dear Savior, in choosing... I mean, in other words, we're not, we're not describing a victim here with Jesus. And I know we, oftentimes we do think of the word humiliation and victimization together. And, and that's perfectly fine. I get that. And, and, and that is appropriate in that sense. But here we're talking about a, 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 a different altogether kind of species, if you would. We're, we're talking about the humility of Christ that allowed for, uh, that even submitted to, because of his perfect humility. His focus was not on how dehumanizing the humiliation was, but on how intent he was on honoring his Father and doing good for his people. He embraced humiliation because of his prior commitment of humility. Now, we could read through the gospel accounts, and we could see episodes of how our humble Savior was humiliated. And yet, I, my, my most endearing picture of the humiliation of Christ, he became obedient obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We see the humility um, placing himself in the humiliation 
in Isaiah 53 like no other passage describes it. Listen to parts of Isaiah 53. Speaking of Jesus, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was placed the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted. And yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to a slaughter. And like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Do you hear the humiliation of our dear Savior for us and for our salvation, for his Father and for his Father's honor? Oh, we have a humble Savior, but we have a humble Savior who chose the path of humiliation for our rescue. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Isn't it irony? Isn't there an irony? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a poetic irony. But our condemnation was secured by Adam's selfish arrogance. And our redemption, praise God, our redemption was secured by Christ's humble selflessness. In fact, by His one life and one death, Christ has put into play the great reversal of all that Adam obtained in his condemnation and now all that Christ's people will obtain in our salvation. God has directed all of history because of his humble and humiliated son. God has now directed all of history to be on the side of the All of his life was a life of humility. Our Christmas carols often, often remind us of this. His humble origins. A humble stable in a lowly manger. His, his commitment to humility. To upholding the glory of his Father. And, and accomplishing the, the rescue of his people. Is something he held fast to all the way through every nook and cranny of 
of walking through humiliation in his humility. But there's nothing, there's nothing that quite captures the humiliation and the humility of Christ quite like the kind of death he died. He died the death of a criminal. Which captures, I would say parenthetically, certainly the depth of our sinfulness, but it captures the height of God's love. He died the death of a criminal. The cross in that day and age was a dehumanizing means of torture. In other words, we mess with you first. We torture you first before we kill you. It was reserved in that day and age for the worst of the worst in the Roman Empire. Not just any old knucklehead wound up on the cross. The most disgusting fragments of humanity was was displayed in its dehumanizing state upon the cross. And even in the Jewish framework, the cross hanging from a tree was in fact in their mind a sign of being cursed by God. And we don't, we don't, we don't think about it. We, so, some of us, and I don't mean this in a bad way, some of us uh, may give or receive uh, uh, golden crosses to, to put around our neck this, this Christmas as a, as a part of our gift. And for, and for, and for us uh, who are being saved, the, the cross is a, a lovely emblem of our rescue and our redemption. And, but you have to understand, in the mindset of what's shaking out in first century culture, well, it would it'd be like at this Christmas you opened up a gift and what it was is it was a gold locket of a, of a uh, electric chair. Oh, great, an electric chair. You know, I mean, if that thrills you, then, then don't be surprised when everybody thinks that you're scary. You, know, you open up and it's, it's a guillotine. Oh, I just love a guillotine around my neck. You know, you, you, you mean, if you get thrilled over a gold-plated guillotine on your neck... Don't be shocked if I don't let my kids play with your kids. Just saying. Something not going on right here. I mean it to say, say do you see something of the, of, the, of the dehumanization, of the shame, of the grossness? that Jesus died like a criminal with two criminals beside him, one on each side, nailed to a piece of wood, naked and left to suffocate. A barbaric cruelty and horror for us and for our salvation. The clarity of Jesus' humility. Second, I want to throw in another concept here, and that is the complexity of Jesus' humility. There is a certain complexity concerning Jesus' humility, that, a, a complexity that perhaps we'll see more fully next week as Jesus is 
magnanimously exalted in the aftermath of his state of humiliation. And yet, I would suggest to you that Jesus' exalted state is not simply in the aftermath of his humiliation and his humility. I think there's a certain sense in which there's a simultaneity concerning our Lord Jesus. He is exalted in his humiliation and not just simply in the aftermath of his humiliation. And here's what I mean by that. All throughout his life, there certainly is that note, as we've already underscored, of the humility of Christ. But, but, but simultaneously, there are threads running through the life and the narrative of Christ that not only describe a humility, but that describe already an exaltation. For instance, the, the humility of Jesus' birth. In a sense, even at his birth, there is already a glory and an exaltation. John 1, in a broad way, describes it this way. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. The glory of Christ certainly gets kicked up a notch after the resurrection. But the glory of Christ can be seen already on the front end of his crucifixion. Oh, it's, it's hidden from sinful eyes. But nonetheless, Hebrews 1 reminds us that when Jesus became man and dwelt among us, he already is the radiance of the glory of God. And that's why even as a young toddler of sorts, uh, Simeon there in Luke is, is waiting for the consolation of Israel. And, and, and when he beholds baby Jesus, he says, Lord, now, now you, 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 let, you, can, you can let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory for your people Israel. Oh, Jesus was already revealing and displaying glory even in the humiliation of his birth. His entire life was a humble life. I've already stated that. And, and, and yet, through the humility of that life, was it, what began seeping out was his glory and his exaltation. His first miracle in, in, recorded in, in, in John 2. The, the, turning the water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana. It tells us that, that in that context, that first miracle was to display His glory. So His whole life was a life of, of humility, and yet His whole life was a life of displaying His exaltation. Just as His crucifixion was the apex of his humility and humiliation. 
there is something profoundly true about how his crucifixion also displays his glory. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 12. He's, a, you know, he's about to move from there into the upper room, so we're just a few days away from his crucifixion. And, and here's what he says. Here's what he says to his father. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus, in all of his humble humiliation, will display the glory of God at his crucifixion. Oh, glory comes later, but glory comes in and through the cross as well. Jesus would go on to say in John 12, and now is the judgment of the world. Now, where are we at? We're on the eve of the crucifixion here. Now is the judgment of this world. Now. You don't know what's about to unfold in and through my humility. Exaltation will be displayed in and through my humility. And now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out when I am lifted up from the earth and will will draw all people to myself. He is an exalted servant. He is a humble king. He is, can you put these together? He is the servant king. Jesus does not ascend to his throne in so many ways after his resurrection. Jesus I would suggest to you, is ruling from his throne on the cross. On the cross, he is lifted up and exalted. On the cross, uh, he is displaying his greatness and his saving power. On the cross, he is rescuing a people for himself. And on the cross, he is dethroning the God of this world. On the cross, he is not displaying a weak victimization. On the cross, he is displaying his power to submit to the glory of his Father and for the good of his people. He is exalting himself from the cross through his humility and through his humiliation. I would remind us, on the eve of his crucifixion, you remember when they came to sneak up on him in the garden and arrest him, thinking that they have pulled the wool over somebody's eyes? They've done their little mischievous deeds in the dark. What does he tell them in Matthew 26? Do you not think that I could not appeal to my father and he at once will send more than 12 legions of angels? Do you think you're forcing your hand upon me? Oh, yes, you're about to humiliate me. But I am about to show my glorious, exalted state. It's a strange king. Most kings conquer by killing 
his enemies. Our king conquers by being killed by his enemies. Do you see the complexity of his humility and his exaltation? Do you see, even as he's being humiliated and mocked while on the cross, when they cried out to him, oh, look at him, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. And then Matthew adds, that was Mark, but then Matthew adds, he is the king of Israel. Come, let him come down now uh, from the cross, and then we will believe in him. Oh, you fools, you fools. If he comes down now from this cross before he has finished this work, there will be nothing to believe in. You will still be dead in your sins. But he hung there on the cross. And while he could have saved himself, while he could have saved himself, he displayed his exalted humility and how he glorified his father and rescued his people. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted. See him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Tis the long-awaited prophet, David's son, yet David's Lord. And by his son, God has now spoken. Tis the true and faithful word. Here we have a firm foundation. Here is the refuge for the lost. Christ, the rock of our salvation. His the name of which we boast. Lamb of God, for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt. None shall ever be confounded who on him their hope have built. So, Father, thank you for 